episode 145 of the podcast that is sweeping America, the Aerotora Sports Podcast. We have a great show for you today. Why is that? P.J. Washington, the former Kentucky Wildcat, is in the building. Okay, well, he's not literally in the building with me, but he is wrapping up his cross-Kentucky signing tour. For people who don't know, uh, he played at Kentucky this past season, and he is uh, going across the state signing autographs all over the state. His final signing is tonight in Lexington at KS Bar. So he comes on to talk about that. He talks a little bit about his decision to return to Kentucky, what he learned, how he grew, what he thought about this year's team, how that foot is doing. And oh, by the way, for those of you who follow me on social media, uh, he shared a wild story from one of the earlier signings and uh, a very strange thing that he was indeed asked to sign. So PJ Washington later in the show, I am super fired up. I got next week another big guest, another NBA draft prospect. I won't tell you who, another SEC star. Uh, It is not a Kentucky guy, but you will love that. So make sure that you're subscribed to the show. I also, before we get to P.J. Washington, I'll hit on some of the big topics of the week. Little bit of a light week. Listen, I'm going to very briefly gloss over the FBI college basketball stuff because I've done a ton on it the last few weeks. I get the sense that you guys are tired of hearing about it. I get the sense that you don't want any more of this. And so we'll gloss over the big topics and we will get to why I think we're just at the point with this trial where it just needs to end. I don't think anything is going to come of it. I don't think we're really learning anything. I think we're just hearing stuff, throwing stuff against a wall. It's hard to separate fact from fiction, so we will get into that. Uh, also, I don't know if you guys saw this wild story uh, out of Los Angeles. The The LA Times did a super in-depth piece about... Um, about the hiring of Mick Cronin. And it was really not really about the hiring of Mick Cronin, but all the missteps before it. So it goes in depth about the John Calipari element, the Jamie Dixon element. Jamie Dixon was so far down the line, they had literally made a nameplate for his door at Pauley Pavilion uh, in the UCLA basketball offices before it all fell apart. Really interesting story on Rick Barnes. So I'm going to tell you a little bit about that, my thoughts. It did, by the way, this article change my opinion really on the UCLA search in general I actually feel better uh, as weird as it sounds to all the candidates they missed I actually feel better about UCLA coming out of this than I did maybe a week or so ago and then I'm going to wrap with some actually some college football I don't do a ton of college football this time of year. I find the college football season, uh, offseason painfully boring. You guys know that I'll talk football during the regular season, but during the offseason, I, I, I can't do it. I can't do it. But this week, we got a wild story, again, also out of L.A., as Reggie Bush is basically admitting that he is openly recruiting uh, Urban Meyer to be the next head coach at USC. I'll tell you what I'm hearing about that. Uh, and why it is a story that you need to be paying attention to. But before we get into all that, I want to remind you guys, please subscribe to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. You can do it on iTunes. You can do it on Podcast Addict. You can do it on Podbean. Podcast Addict, I should mention, if you have an Android, that's the best place to get us, Podcast Addict. You can do it on Pod Paradise. You can stream it online. Tune in radio. Wherever you listen to podcasts, please subscribe to this show. And as I mentioned, we got some great guests coming up. I don't want to give too much away, but PJ Washington this week, next week, another very high profile basketball player. As I mentioned, Michael Bent, the uh, former heavyweight champion of the world. If you have not seen the documentary Losers uh, with Michael Bent, I encourage you to do it. I think I'm going to run the interview with Michael Bent on Monday. As I've said a few times, it is a lot different than anything that I have ever done on this show, very in-depth. He gets into some very personal stuff, some very dark stuff from his past, but it was really a a fun and engaging interview. And oh, by the way, uh, as I said, it is because he is the star of a new Netflix documentary uh, called Losers, 
And in that movie or in that show, Losers, he, uh, you know, it's his his life story. And so we get into a lot of that. So Michael Bent next week, another big time college basketball player next week. Oh, by the way, some coaches are coming up. We got some athletes coming up. We got some media members coming up. A lot of great stuff. All right. So let's get into today's show. I do want to start with the FBI trial and I want to start really start by apologizing. I get the sense that you guys are kind of tired of talking about this. And, I, and I'm and i kind of tired of talking about it too because I now think that we're at the point where stuff is just getting thrown up against a wall. We're hearing stuff from these, these wiretaps. I think it's all being taken. I don't want to say it's all being, but a lot of it is being taken out of context. I think it's hard to piece together what is actually factual, what is actually useful, how it's actually going to impact college basketball. And I really don't know how much it really is going to impact college basketball. And so if you listen to Monday's show, you know that that I'm kind of on the fence with this stuff, right? But what I also said, I said, look, the bottom line is when it comes to this FBI trial, there is obviously stuff that has been proven to be true, right? Like USC's assistant coach took money um, and he gave it to the, the family, or he was supposed to give it to the family of DeAnthony Melton. He asked for money to pay for Marvin Bagley. Um, we don't know if it ever got to the Bagley family. The Bagley family has denied it. But we know that a USC assistant coach took money. That is, a that is it should be an NCAA violation. USC should get punished for it, although I don't know how much they'll even get punished for it because they fired the coach and suspended the player, DeAnthony Melton, for a full season. Arizona assistant coach, Book Richardson, he, he he pled guilty in court to taking money, to taking a bribe to give to Javon Quinterly. So, like, yeah, there are things in this trial that have come out that have been indisputably proven to be correct. Here's my problem, though. As I told you last episode, everything that's coming out in this trial up until Wednesday night, and I'll get into the Wednesday stuff in a minute, it's all stuff that comes off a wiretap. And the wiretap is guys in college basketball, Christian Dawkins, this agent, this middleman. It's him talking to his buddies, and his buddies just happen to be coaches. And so, listen, when, when we talk to our buddies and we don't know we're being recorded, we say all kinds of crazy stuff, right? Like, you would never, um, you know, you call your best friend before you guys are going on vacation together to Vegas. Or you're, you're not going to, like, like. or by the way, the, the call after your trip to Vegas. Like, not everything you say on that call is 100% true, right? Like, oh, man, I got, I, I drank like 30 beers that day. Well, you didn't really drink 30 beers. It's hyperbole. Like, you're talking with your boys. Oh, that chick was so into me, bro. Hey, was, she, was she really into you? Like, I think she threw a drink in your face. She wasn't into you. So, like, the point I'm trying to make is when you're on the phone with your buddies, you exaggerate, there's hyperbole, uh, you BS. That's what we do with our friends. That's what we do uh, with our buddies. That's what you do with your friends, with your family, with whoever. You just, you BS, you're talking, and stuff comes out. And by the way, when you're talking with your coworkers, stuff about business comes out. Did you hear about Margaret, what she did? Oh, this person got laid off. Oh, I heard this person's in real trouble with the boss. You don't know if it's all true, but you're saying it anyway. And so that's my problem with this FBI situation, is you have basically everything coming out is Christian Dawkins talking to these various people, including Book Richardson, the Arizona coach, Tony Bland, the USC coach, Preston Murphy from uh, Creighton. Like, and they're BSing, they're talking, but the pro- my problem is that everybody is literally taking everything that comes out of this trial as if it is literal, as if every word is absolute gospel, and I just don't believe it. Like, some of the stuff just doesn't even make sense, right? So, like, as an example, earlier this week, this story comes out that Book Richardson, the assistant coach at Arizona, he is on the wiretap talking about how he had a conversation with Will Wade. They're talking about Nas Reed, who ended up at LSU. And Will Wade's like, dude, don't even bother recruiting him. I already got a deal in place. It's for $300,000. So this is this is not Book Richardson talking to Will Wade. This is Book Richardson talking to Christian Dawkins about a conversation that he had with Will Wade. And now look, none of us were in the courtroom. We're all going on what reports have come out. 
But do you really believe? So, so the report is Will Wade saying, yeah, I already got a deal in place, $300,000, don't even bother rec- recruiting Nas Reed. But again, it wasn't Will Wade saying it. It was Book Richardson, the Arizona assistant coach, talking to Christian Dawkins. And so here's my question. That makes for a great headline. And I talked about this last episode. A lot of this stuff makes for a great headline. But is it factually correct? I mean, some of this stuff, let's just use common sense, right? So like, for example, this makes no sense. First of all, I know we love the salacious details, $300,000. $300,000 a lot of money. And like, I can't lie. I find it a little hard to believe that anybody's paying $300,000 for Nas Reed. Because later on, we find out that supposedly DeAndre Ayton is getting paid $10,000 a month. So he's at Arizona for eight or nine months. That's like $90,000. So you're telling me that LSU, a school that has no basketball tradition, a school where, let's be honest, nobody really cares that much about basketball, they're going to pay three times as much for Nas Reed as as Arizona was for DeAndre Ayton, allegedly, Like, come on, that makes no sense. But then let's take it a step further. Let's just use our brains. Let's just use common sense, okay? Because if you believe that story, and again, it's a great headline. It sounds, oh, oh my God, LSU, $300,000. It's unbelievable. But let's just think about it. It makes no sense. And here's why. Why would Will Wade ever tell an assistant coach from a competing school, from another school, from a school he's going up against. (laughs) Don't even bother recruiting that kid. I already put a bid on him for $300,000. He's coming to me. What? Are you serious? Will Wade's just going to come out and tell an assistant coach from another another school that he's breaking NCAA rules to get players? That makes no sense. And so, like, to me, this is, this is, that right there is like the crux of that FBI trial in one. Like a lot of cool stuff, a lot of crazy stuff, a lot of great stories are coming out. But it doesn't really make sense if you think about it. It just doesn't. Will Wade's not going to sit there and talk to an assistant coach like, I already got a deal in place for $300,000. It's not going to happen. And even even if it did hypothetically, and it didn't, but even if it did, we're hearing it from a third-hand source. So, like, it wasn't Will Wade talking about it on the wiretap. It was an Arizona assistant coach talking to Christian Dawkins that he heard that Nas Reed had a $300,000 deal in place. Is that supposed to be proof beyond a reasonable doubt? Like, I'm not saying that a lot of the stuff that came out in this trial might not be true, but at a certain point, it's like we got to cut past the crap and figure out what's truth, what's not. Let me give you another example. I just referenced DeAndre Ayton. Book Richardson, again, on the phone with Christian Dawkins. This isn't Sean Miller saying this. This isn't Sean Miller. This is an assistant coach from Arizona saying, well, you know, DeAndre Ayton's getting 10 k a month to be here at Arizona. Now, again, to be clear, I'm not saying that Sean Miller is a saint. I'm not saying that Sean Miller has never broken an NCAA rule in the history of his career at Arizona. I'm not saying that, but are we supposed to take that as absolute 100% fact, especially given the two people that are having a conversation? So Christian Dawkins um, is a con man. We'll get into what Christian Dawkins said on Wednesday in a minute, but Christian Dawkins is this con man that claims that he's so close with Sean Miller, because this came out earlier in the week too. Christian Dawkins claimed that he's so close with Sean Miller that Sean Miller wants him to come to Arizona and help run kind of whatever's going on with DeAndre in his recruitment, his payment, whatever. Does that really make sense? Sean Miller, who we all know, is a complete control freak. He's going to invite some guy that he barely knows to campus to handle the most high-profile player in America? That makes no sense. And I know I'm jumping around here, but I'm trying to prove the point that you can't believe everything that's said on a wiretap because these guys didn't know they were being recorded. They weren't under oath. This wasn't with a hand on a Bible. This is just two dudes talking. And so is it possible DeAndre Ayton got extra benefits? Yeah, a thousand percent it's possible. But 
let's also remember the FBI still Sean Miller is not on a single wiretap that we've heard so far they had Christian Dawkins phone tapped for weeks and we haven't heard Sean Miller so is Sean Miller really as tight with Christian Dawkins as he says he is or is Christian Dawkins blowing smoke And this is my problem with the media coverage of this whole thing. And to be abundantly clear, I'm not saying that a guy like Sean Miller and a guy like Will Wade didn't break rules. I'm not saying that. Because by the time you guys listen to this, maybe new information will come out, maybe a wiretap with Sean Miller's voice on it will have been played and I'll look like an idiot. But I also deal in facts. I also deal in reality. I also deal with the truth. And the truth is right now, here's my question. Christian Dawkins has claimed on all these wiretaps how close he is with Sean Miller. If he's so close with Sean Miller and Christian Dawkins' phone was tapped for weeks at a time, why hasn't Sean Miller's voice been heard on one of those wiretaps? Well, maybe Sean Miller's the luckiest guy in the world. Or maybe... He didn't really talk to Christian Dawkins that much. Maybe he wasn't breaking rules. Maybe he was. Maybe if he was breaking rules, he wasn't just hopping on the phone and yap, yap, yapping away with Christian Dawkins about, uh, you know, about, uh, about paying for players. That's my whole thing. By the way, and I've said this another time, these wiretaps happened in 2017. DeAndre Eaton was already on campus. So this idea that like there's all this damning evidence about DeAndre Ayton's, Ayton's recruitment, the timeline doesn't match up. So that's all I'm saying with this FBI thing. I'm not saying rules weren't broken. They were. Assistant coaches have pled guilty to bribery. But like there's this witch hunt out here for Sean Miller. There's this witch hunt out here for Will Wade. And I think it's just totally unfair based on the knowledge that we have. This Will Wade wiretap, I've been saying it for two months. Nobody's heard this wiretap. We claim it exists. We claim it's out there. Yahoo puts out this report. No one has heard the wiretap. And until I hear the wiretap, I'm not going to say that that Will Wade deserves to be fired. There is a reason in our society, in our legal system, forget the BSNCA stuff, in our legal system, it is innocent until proven guilty. So why should I not give Sean Miller that same benefit of the doubt? Why should I not give Will Wade the same benefit of the doubt? Because right now we have nothing with their voice on it. We have nothing tangible proof. We have no receipt. We have no video of money changing hands. We have video of money changing hands with assistant coaches at Arizona, at USC, at TCU, at Creighton. We don't have any we don't have any video of Sean Miller. We don't have any video of Will Wade. And oh by the way, here's the last part. I want to go back to Christian Dawkins for a second. Because this is the part that drives me bananas. So Christian Dawkins took the witness stand on Wednesday. Basically in his own defense. And in his own defense, it's what I told you guys a week ago. Is it can't really be bribery. It can't really be um, a federal crime if everybody's doing it. And so Christian Dawkins went on the witness stand. But in the process of answering questions, he revealed what his true character is. And you know what he revealed? This is what Christian Dawkins revealed. One, that when he's working with his quote-unquote business partners, when he's trying to bring college coaches into his circle, guess what? First of all, he downplayed how many coaches were actually involved because he didn't even want to recruit coaches. He wanted to recruit players. He wanted to recruit parents. He said, let's cut out the coaches, cut out the middlemen. But here's the crazy part. He admitted on the witness stand on Wednesday, he testified that when his business partners gave him money, you know what he did? He said he'd give it to a coach, but he didn't. He took $11,000 that he was supposed to give to USC assistant coach Tony Bland. I do think some of it got to Tony Bland. But some of that money that was supposed to go to Tony Bland, you know where it went? Christian Dawkins took it, put it in his own bank account, and used it for his own agency. By the way, there was another situation. One of his buddies coaches at Creighton, or did coach at Creighton, he's since been fired. Christian Dawkins and his buddy 
made up a player and said, this is a true story. You can Google it. It's, it's, it's out there. It happened on Wednesday. Christian Dawkins admitted to it. Christian Dawkins met with his business partner with an assistant coach from Creighton. And they said, yeah, we got this player. He's so good. Uh, give me some money and we'll funnel him back to you. You know what, what happened? The player didn't exist. They made up the player so Christian Dawkins and his buddy could get some extra spending cash. Are you serious? That happened. And that's the guy, Christian Dawkins, stealing from his own business partners, making up players to get money from his business partners so he can spend on his own, okay? And that's the guy that you believe unequivocally? That's the guy on the, on the witness stand that you're telling me is, is the face for everything that's wrong with college basketball? He's proof? He's proof? That college basketball is corrupt? The guy that's stealing from his own business partners? That's who you're telling me is going to tear down college basketball and is exposing the truth about college basketball? This guy's never told, told the true story in his life. And now we want to tear down college basketball because of this guy? Be better than that. Be smarter than that. So we will see what happens with this FBI story going forward. And as I said, I'm not here blindly defending Sean Miller. I'm not here blindly defending Will Wade. But if those guys get busted, if a, if a tape gets played, I will be the first person to say, you got to fire Sean Miller. You got to fire Will Wade. But we can't just go around firing people uh, because of something that somebody else says on a, on, a, on a videotape, right? Like, think about it. Imagine if, you know, you miss a day of work and one of your coworkers says to another coworker on the phone, yeah, you know, I heard, uh, yeah, Mike over in accounting. Yeah, you know, I heard he got arrested last night. And uh, uh, yeah, I think he's behind bars. I think that's why he's not in today. And imagine if the boss took that information that you were supposedly under arrest, that you were behind bars and fired you for it. Does that make sense? Of course not. Because there's no proof. What if you're just sick? What if your kid's sick? What if you're at home because your kid's sick and they need somebody to stay with them? But that's what we're doing with Sean Miller. Because somebody else that kind of sort of knows Sean Miller, Christian Dawkins maybe knows him, Book, Book Richardson obviously does. Because some people are saying that, like, we're just taking that as fact and he needs to be fired? Get out of here. So we'll see. We will see. I've already gone longer on the FBI stuff than I wanted to, so I apologize for that. But I got to get that off my chest. It drives me bananas. And by the way, if you disagree, it's fine. And by the way, maybe I'll be proven wrong. Maybe in the next couple of days that Will Wade wiretap that we've been promised will come out. Maybe the Sean Miller wiretap that we've been promised will come out. But... Until I see that, like, I, I need more than that. I need proof. Again, this is why in our court system it's innocent until proven guilty. But in the world of college basketball, we don't actually do that. And I'm the only person in the media that's like, hey, let's just, let's just get some facts before we just start firing people left and right. All right, so let's move on. A couple other things that I found really interesting this week. If you follow me on Twitter, at Aaron underscore Torres, I put out this article Wednesday morning, UCLA... Uh, the LA Times did this huge, this massive piece on UCLA and the coaching search which led to Mick Cronin. And it goes through kind of candidate by candidate. John Calipari, Rick Barnes, Jamie Dixon, and how they got to Mick Cronin. And when I tell you this was a fascinating piece, this was a fascinating piece. So let me give you some of the details first. So this is what we learned, and then I'll get into kind of what I think about it. So first of all, according to the article, it was from the LA Times, reputable newspaper. This isn't some blog post or whatever. Like, this is a reputable newspaper. First of all, UCLA vetted 60 candidates, and they found out that actually quite a few of them were crossed off either because they had problems with the NCAA. I'm guessing that's like a Bruce Pearl type. They have infidelity. That was, to me, the first interesting little nugget. They had to cross off a lot of people because they did a little research and <laughs> Coach fill in the blank, uh, he's filling in the blank somewhere else if you know what I mean. 
I thought that was interesting. Shout out to UCLA. They ain't about to get Bobby Petrino. They ain't about to have their coach driving around town on a motorcycle with his mistress. So that was number one. Was one, they had to, to knock off a bunch of really quality candidates because too many of them have mistresses. So shout out to the mistresses that are getting all the, you know, whatever. I'll stay out of it. I don't want to talk about adultery. This is an adultery-free podcast, the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast, anti-adultery. That's my big stance. I'm anti-adultery. So we've learned that a bunch of candidates got knocked off because of infidelity. Again, this is an anti-adultery podcast. The next interesting thing, UCLA, and look, I know this is a little bit hyperbole. UCLA, I think they really thought that they could get John Calipari. So what we learned was, I know that the reports had been, what was it, $48 million over six years. This said $45 million over six years. This was what was offered to John Calipari, $45 million over six years, a $1.7 million pool for assistant coaches, eight new staff position, private planes for the use of team and coaches, and a monthly catered meal for Calipari's staff and players. The cater meal part, I don't really know what that means. I don't know if that's like, a, you know, once a month they go out to like a fancy steakhouse or something because uh, that feels a little weird. I, I mean, I'll say in defense of UCLA, I have been to the UCLA basketball practice facility. Uh, the kids there are very well fed. So I, I, that was a little weird to me. But what was interesting was is that they said that negotiations with Calipari progressed to the point that UCLA was actually calling boosters to raise money to say, hey, this is a real thing. We need your money to put this package on the table for Calipari. It obviously fell through. Calipari stays at Kentucky. We'll get into the Calipari element of it in a minute. Next one, how about your boy Rick Barnes? We'll get to Jamie Dixon in a minute. So after Calipari, they go to Jamie Dixon, and the issue with the buyout pops up. So let's just do Jamie Dixon right now. First of all, Jamie Dixon... He experienced, and this kind of makes sense from UCLA's perspective, right? Because we're sitting there saying, why did UCLA ever think that they were going to get the buyout reduced for Jamie Dixon? Well, Jamie Dixon kind of led UCLA on because Jamie Dixon explained that when he went from Pitt to TCU, that Pitt actually lowered its buyout. Now, if you remember, Jamie Dixon was kind of on like a sketchy ground with, with Pitt at that time. He had struggled the last couple of years. So they wanted him gone. So that's why they reduced his buyout. But this was why UCLA couldn't hire Jamie Dixon was because of the buyout. What was interesting, though, was two things. One, they said that they got so far along with Jamie Dixon that there was actually press releases written, as I referenced off the top, um, the assistant, uh, uh, the... Uh, the, the nameplates were, were made to be put on the doors in the practice facility in Jamie Dixon's office. So this thing got pretty far. Here was the hiccup with this, was that I guess by definition, so they couldn't get the buyout reduced. Then, I guess by California law, buyouts are considered, they're taxed as though they're a gift. So there's a higher tax rate on them, or maybe a lower tax rate. I don't know. I'm not a tax I'm not an accountant, Okay. Anti-adultery podcast, anti-math podcast. I'm I'm not in favor of either of them. I'm not a, I'm not good at math, but but it had to be. It was taxed as a gift, and so Dixon would have been owed. But Dixon would have had to pay out of his own pocket four million dollars for the buyout. And I guess Jamie Dixon really wanted the job, but not if he was going to have to pay four million dollars to TCU. So that's how he got out of it. Then you got the Rick Barnes element, which was interesting. Because I guess Rick Barnes, they went back and forth and back and forth. Rick Barnes even has pretty much said this, is that he basically agreed to take the job. Um, UCLA was going to pay his buyout because it was much more affordable than Jamie Dixon's. Rick Barnes basically agrees to the job. Then a day later says, "Eh, I don't know. I don't know if I want the job. I need some more money. And then UCLA says, screw you, bro. Like, no, we're not. We, we, the deal was on the table. You either sign it or you don't. He then comes back and says, okay, I'll take the original deal. And they said, we've already moved on at this point. And that's when they ended up with Mick Cronin. Now, the last part with Rick Barnes really quick. I don't know how much of that is true. 
I mean, if you want your guy, I don't know that if he asks for a little bit more after he agrees to a deal, if that's a deal breaker or if they had just moved on. I did find that part interesting, though. I do kind of feel like, by the way, with Rick Barnes, I just wonder if it was one of those. He asked, he probably asked for a lot of money. They offered it to him. And then when he then when he accepted, he's like, I don't really want to go to UCLA. Like, I got it. Like, like, and this was my thing with Rick Barnes a few days ago. Like, Rick Barnes has it really good at Tennessee. Like, Rick Barnes, you know, he just made a Sweet 16. You go to the NCAA tournament every year. Like, I do think that Rick Barnes kind of realizes, like, I'm pretty set at Tennessee. I go to UCLA. I miss a tournament here. I get knocked out in the first round there. Like, I, I might be out of a job in four or five years. And so I'm not surprised that Rick Barnes ultimately didn't end up with the job. UCLA side of things says that um, – UCLA is saying that they offered him the job, he accepted, then he asked for more money. By the time he said he'll take it at the regular rate, he declined. Who knows? But I want to talk about a few interesting things. First of all, the Calipari element. Listen, I know you guys are going to laugh at me for saying this. You're going to make fun of me. It's fine. You can throw rotten tomatoes at me on social media. I don't know how that's possible, but if there's a way, you guys can do it. But what I'll tell you is this, is that... I do believe, and this is what the article says, the article claims that UCLA truly believed that John Calipari did have interest in the job, that it wasn't solely leverage to get more money. Now, you guys can laugh at me, you can disagree. I think there might be something there. And I do think, even if it was only for a day, even if it was only for one night, even if it was only for a few hours... I think Calipari at least thought about taking that job. I really do, and I'll tell you why. First of all, Calipari, and I've told this story on this show before, Calipari has always kind of looked at UCLA like, how are you, like, and I told this story, like, Calipari's like, how do people not win national championships there? Because the story that I told, and this was directly from someone on Steve Alford's staff, is... John Calipari a couple years ago was out in LA to do something. I think he was out at that that um, that award show that ESPN puts on every year, where they do the awards at the end of the season. So he was out in LA. He swung by UCLA. He's hang. He likes Steve Alford. He knows Steve Alford, and he's hanging out with UCLA and 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 Steve Alford and his staff. And they're walking around campus. Hey, let's go get some lunch. And they're walking around campus and the sun is shining and the birds are chirping and it's 70 degrees. And this was in front of Steve Alford's own staff that John Calipari said this. And I've told this story on this show before. John Calipari says to Steve Alford, he looks him dead in the eye in front of Steve Alford's own assistant coaches. And he says, bro, and excuse my language, I'm about to to not suitable for work. So if you're at work, if you have kids in the car, turn it down for the next 10 seconds. But Calipari turns to Steve Alford. He says, dude, how the fuck do you not win here, dude? And apparently the UCLA staff just thought that was the funniest thing they had ever heard. And and Steve Alford got really red and he changed the subject. And look, Calipari was busting Alford's chops. But the point is that I do think at a certain point in his career, Calipari really looked at that UCLA job like, if I ever do leave Kentucky, maybe this is the job that I leave for. Now, how far it got in this particular coaching search, only Calipari knows. But what I what, what I think is this, is that one, I think he's always coveted the job, as I just said. But two, here's the other thing. Calipari just turned 60 years old in February. His kid potentially could be leaving Kentucky this year. And I do wonder, like I said, maybe it was only for a day. Maybe it was only he slept on it for a night. But I do wonder if he thought, I'm 60 years old. All my kids are out of the house. Do I really want this to be the last chapter of my career in Lexington? Like, by the way, there's nothing wrong with the Kentucky job. It's an incredible job. It's an unbelievable job. It's the best job in college basketball as far as I'm concerned. But I think when you're a highly motivated person like Calipari, you spent your whole life fighting to get the credit and the respect that you deserve. I think he was sitting there saying, I got a great at Kentucky, but do I need a new challenge? I'm 60 years old. Do I just want to 
and I'm going to use a bad Kentucky terminology, especially two days uh, before the Kentucky Derby, but do I want to be put out to pasture? Like, I still got some fire in my belly. I still feel like I can do special things. And is it possible that maybe I should move on and try something different? Is it, like, like I've done it all at Kentucky. I've won a national championship, four Final Fours. What is it, seven Elite Eights, something like that? Like, I, I've killed it at Kentucky. Is, is there something else left for me? Now, ultimately, I think he made the decision that was best for him. He decided to stay at Kentucky. He took that lifetime deal, and he's going to retire. But I'll tell you this. When you're a hyper-motivated guy like that, I think it's really hard to just sit there and say, I'm in the last chapter of my career. I'm on the final three or four holes of an 18-hole uh, championship round. And so I do think that for at least a while, Calipari did consider it. Like I said, I think... He made the right choice for him. Obviously, he did. Uh, and Kentucky is the best job in college basketball. But I do think for at least a little while, I think he did at least just think about it a little bit. But I want to wrap on the UCLA stuff with this because I've been a little bit critical of the Mick Cronin hire on this on this show. And I've been certainly critical of the process. But in reading that article, I actually came away a little bit more impressed with UCLA than I expected to be. And I'll tell you why. Um, it, it, it One, it's really pretty simple is that we saw that that long winding um you know that long winding search to find a head coach and like look I think we all kind of sat there and like what is UCLA doing well one the way that it's explained in the article very simply is that UCLA knew it screwed up with Steve Alford and it knew it screwed up in this sense is that when their search started to find a coach after they let Ben Howland go. They thought they were getting Brad Stevens. And then they got down the road with Brad Stevens. He turns them down, and the staff kind of freaked out. And they said, oh, what do we do? And they rushed, and they hired Steve Alford, and they knew they screwed up the hire, and they didn't want to do it again. And so in this case, that's why they did the due diligence. That's why they cut out all the... <laughs> Why they cut out all the adulterers, why they at least made a phone call to Calipari, why they made a phone call to a bunch of other guys. They mentioned Matt Painter at Purdue turned down the job, Rick Barnes, obviously, Jamie Dixon. So I have no problem with this because, one, I think to UCLA's credit, they barked up every tree. They went after every big-name coach that they could. And let's be honest, it's really hard to get a good coach from a good job to leave a job for another school. It just doesn't happen that often. I mean, even John Calipari, who's now a Hall of Famer, I mean, he came from Memphis. Memphis is a good job. It's not Kentucky good. And if John Calipari was somewhere else, does he leave that job for Kentucky? Probably, but you don't know. But it's hard to get a Jay Wright to leave Villanova. It's hard to get a Tony Bennett to leave Virginia when they were obviously in the middle of a special season that resulted in a national championship. And so I, I, I give UCLA credit because I do think they did their due diligence. I think they barked up every tree they could. They 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 went up, they they looked, they went after every coach that was realistic. Um, and they ended up with Mick Cronin. And I'll be honest, I think Mick Cronin's gonna be pretty good. I don't know if he'll be great, but the one thing that UCLA has been lacking over the last couple of years is kind of a toughness about him. And I do think Mick Cronin will bring that. I do think he'll make them competitive right away. As a matter of fact, when I do my top 25 after the NBA draft deadline, UCLA is going to be knocking on the door of a potential top 25 spot because the talent's always been there. And now they got a coach that's actually going to push them. So uh, I found that story really interesting. I found the UCLA thing really interesting. I would encourage you to check that out. Uh, LA Times, it's on my Twitter feed, at Aaron underscore Torres. And last thing. Because this was awesome. And I told you at the top, I don't really talk a ton of college football in the offseason. I find the college football offseason to be like painfully, painfully boring. I'm sorry. I don't like talking depth charts. I don't like talking, yeah, how's the O-line depth over at uh, LSU? Like that. That's not my style. That's not how I roll. But I'll say this. How about your boy Reggie Bush? So if you guys didn't see this story, Reggie Bush, first of all, is part of the new uh, college football crew at Fox Sports. Uh, I guess in theory they're all my coworkers, but you see, uh, Fox Sports put together this dream team uh, of college football analysts for their new Saturday show, and it features Matt Leinart, Br uh, Brady Quinn, 
Reggie Bush and Urban Meyer. And so I guess somebody asked Reggie Bush about working with Urban Meyer or the relationship with Urban Meyer. And by the way, I should mention that basically since the day that Urban Meyer quote-unquote retired from Ohio State, there's been speculation that if the the USC job opens up in football, we have transition to football, so we're talking football now, that Urban Meyer would be interested. It's one of the few kind of big-name jobs that's going to open up that Urban Meyer might be interested in. And so Reggie Bush was asked about it, and he said, oh, yeah, no, if I, if I got to recruit Urban Meyer to USC, I'll be glad to do it. First of all, it's kind of incredible because Reggie Bush is banned from USC football. But with that said, how about your boy Reggie Bush just coming out and saying, yeah, no, we're going we're gonna to try to get Urban Meyer to, to USC. And so to me, look, this, is the big, this will be the biggest story in college football I believe in 2019, certainly away from the field. Now, look, if you want to argue Clemson or Bama or Jalen Hurts at Oklahoma or Ohio State with a first-year head coach, that those stories will feel bigger, then that's fine. I'm not going to argue with you on that. But when I'm talking about off the field, drama, excitement, coaching carousel, the stuff that we love, I'm telling you, this is going to be a story. Because here's the bottom line. I just mentioned it with John Calipari a minute ago. John Calipari is 60 years old, uh, and I'm not even sure that he wanted Kentucky uh, to be his last leg. I think he wanted to feel like I got something left in the tank. Urban Meyer, if you can believe this, is only 54 years old. He'll be 55 in July. And I just find it really hard to believe that Urban Meyer is done coaching. Like, you mean to tell me this hyper-competitive guy where football has been the only thing that has mattered to him since he's 20 years old, except for one year when he retired the first time. Hyper-competitive guy. That he's just going to spend the next 25, 30 years of his life calling college football games as an, an, as an analyst and he's going to be happy? I don't buy that. I mean, look. As I just mentioned, Calipari's 60 and he's still going strong. I know it's basketball, but it's different. Nick Saban is 67 years old. He's got 13 years on Urban Meyer. So Urban Meyer's going to have to sit out 13 years just to be as old as Nick Saban is right now. Do you really think that's going to happen? Of course, with Urban Meyer, the problem is there's only a few jobs that you can justify coming back for. I mean, he's not going to go coach at, uh, you know, Bowling Green or uh, uh, Western Kentucky or, or, or Oregon State. Like, it's got to be a good job. And so this is what's interesting to me because USC is a great job. And I know that people want to crush USC because they've been bad. I know everybody wants to kick the Pac-12 because they're down. But I'll tell you this. USC, from, bat- from football people, excuse me, is still a really, really, really good job. Um, and I, I would argue it's probably one of the top five jobs in college football. I mean, you can argue whatever you want. Alabama, LSU, Ohio State, Michigan, Notre Dame, Clemson, Florida State, Florida, whatever. Here's the bottom line on USC. First of all, they, they're coming off a six and, uh, five and seven year. They had the number 20 recruiting class in the country. You know what their recruiting classes were prior to 2019? 2018, they were the number four ranked recruiting class in the country. 2017, number four ranked recruiting class in the country. 2016, number 10 ranked recruiting class in the country. 2015, the number two ranked recruiting class in the country. That means that three out of the last five years, during a time, by the way, when USC really hasn't been that good, three out of the last five years, USC has had a top five class. They've had a top 10 class for the last uh, for the last five years. The only year they didn't was this year when they're coming off a 5-7 and seven season. And let's be honest, they were really young and didn't have that many scholarships to give out. And so I look at this situation, and I just feel like USC is still a very coveted job in college football. Every kid on the West Coast still wants to go to USC. I know Washington's playing well right now. I know Oregon's playing well right now. But kids still want to go to USC. When they get a USC offer, it's like getting offered by Kentucky or Duke or UCLA. It still means something even if the program isn't good. And I think most coaches know, like, you get the right guy at USC, oh my God, that's Ohio State in the Big Ten. That's Oklahoma in the Big 12. It's dominance. 
And so I do think Urban Meyer is looking at that job. I do think Reggie Bush is recruiting Urban Meyer to that job. Now, will it happen? I don't know. I mean, the one thing you got to remember about USC, that place is a total dumpster fire. Uh, their AD is Lynn Swan, who's a former athlete with no administrative background. He actually was out doing an autograph signing a few weeks ago uh, as the program burned to the ground. If you'll remember, as I've mentioned a few times, the basketball program caught in this FBI trial. Don't forget, the athletic department was also caught in the second FBI trial, the one where, uh, you know, Aunt Becky and all of them uh, were paying to get their kids enrolled in... Uh, in schools, and it was through the USC Athletic Department. The number two person below Lynn Swan was taking six-figure bribes, was taking, excuse me, seven-figure bribes, over a million dollars to get certain people into USC pretending to be athletes. So the place is a total mess. Now, does Urban Meyer care? I don't know. I think that's the only thing that could hold him back, but I'm telling you this is going to be a story. Reggie Bush coming out saying, yeah, no, I'm, I'm recruiting Urban Meyer to USC. He did walk it back a little bit on, uh, on Wednesday, kind of said he was joking. That dude wasn't joking. He wants Urban Meyer at USC, and this is a story to watch. So that is all for my segment of today's Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. I want to thank everybody for listening. If this is your first time, please make sure to be subscribed to the Aaron Torres Sports Podcast. Do it on iTunes. Do it on the Podcast Addict app. If you have an Android, you can do it on TuneIn Radio. You can do it on Pod Paradise. Wherever you listen to podcasts, it's available. Also, make sure to rate and review the show. I encourage you to give me five star. That would be greatly, greatly appreciated. What else? Instagram. Make sure you follow me on Instagram. At Aaron underscore Torres underscore sports underscore podcast. That is all. Please make sure to now listen as I welcome on the man, the myth, the legend, Mr. Mean Mug himself, P.J. Washington. All right, and joining me on the phone now, a Kentucky All-American, All-SEC player, future NBA star, P.J. Washington is on the phone. P.J., how you doing today, my man? I'm doing good. Good to hear. Good to hear. All right, so let's start with this. Uh, your final, you've been doing this statewide signing tour. I think you've done probably six, seven, eight stops at this point. Final stop is tonight, Thursday night in Lexington, uh, KS Bar. How has the experience been? How has the uh, signing tour been, getting a chance to meet some fans across the state of Kentucky? It's been great. Uh, just going around and seeing uh, the Kentucky fans. We have a great fan base. They always cheer for us, and uh, just to see their faces and put smiles on them is just amazing. I was going to say, during the course of the season, you guys spend so much time practicing and in school and uh, doing the things that are required of being a high Division One basketball player. Is it nice to be able to get out and meet some of the fans that are cheering for you every night in Rupp Arena or hitting you up on Twitter and Instagram? I mean, I just feel like sometimes uh, we all do this. We get caught up in our everyday life, and to get out and actually meet people, I'm guessing, must be fun. Yeah, I mean, it's fun, Max. Uh, you go to Kentucky games, you see the arena is always filled with Kentucky fans. But uh, once you go out and around the state and see them in person, it's a whole lot. It's a whole different experience because um, everybody believes blue. Everybody's uh, one of your biggest fans, and everybody's supporting you through the whole process. But just to see them in person is, is eye-opening. It's amazing. Just from the tour, are there any – uh, any crazy experiences, anything crazy that, that you were asked to sign? I saw one place you were making some pizza. Uh, what are the crazy sp uh, experiences from this trip? Uh, definitely I made some pizza uh, a couple days ago. Okay. And, uh, there was this one item that I signed. It was like, I think it was like a, a wildcat. It was like dead or something. But, <laughs> and uh, I signed it. Yeah, it was, it was the weirdest thing I've, uh, I've seen so far. Was it stuffed or like I need some details on that, man? Yeah, I think I think it was stuffed. Okay, and you said yes, and you smiled, and you were maybe freaked out a little tiny bit. Yeah, I was kind of shocked because I mean I've never seen anything like it. So I mean, just kind of just kind of just kind of weird. 
That's hysterical. Real quick, we'll get into some of the stuff from the season. I also saw, and I have to say, I really like the t-shirts that you came out with. So give some fans some details on these t-shirts, the PJ Washington Mean Mug t-shirts. I saw them on your Instagram. Yeah, I mean, uh, I feel like we need to come up with some t-shirts. People are asking for them. So uh, I'm pretty happy with the design and everything. I feel like it kind of looks like me, and uh, I definitely like it. Where uh, where did the idea come from? People were just asking for him? Yeah, I mean, people uh, people were asking for him on Twitter, and then uh, some of my teammates came out with it too, so I thought, why not just make one for me? The Mean Mug, is that something that you consciously realized that you were doing? Um, you know, we all watched the games. We saw you after a big dunk or a block or a big board or whatever. I, you know, we saw you grab the ball, flex, do the mean mug. I mean, is that something you realize you're doing in real time, or would you go back and watch film and be like, ah, I didn't even know I did that? No, I mean, I realize I'm doing that. It's just a habit I've had since I was a kid. I mean, I've always been uh, really emotional on the court and uh, shown my emotions when a good play happens or a big play happens. So just doing that in college kind of kind of blew up a little bit, I would say. I would say it did indeed. So let's talk about this season and really the last year. I mean, a year ago at this time, you elected to declare for the draft, announce that you're going to test the waters, experience the NBA draft combine. Um, how was that experience last year in terms of uh, getting feedback, kind of figuring out what you need to do to get ready for this year? Oh, it was great. I mean, I went in there uh, with an open mind and uh, and uh, I came back, worked on those things, did a good job of it in my eyes. Um, biggest thing for me was uh, just being a consistent shooter, knocking down shots and being guarding perimeter players and uh, being able to switch on guard and stuff like that. So that was the biggest thing I worked on. And uh, I feel like the most, where I had improved the most was my body. So uh, I tried to cut down on the uh, fast moves and stuff like that. And I tried to stand in the gym more and uh, get a lot of extra cardio. So are you like a uh, grilled chicken and broccoli kind of guy every night or what? Uh, not, I mean, not really. I mean, sometimes, but uh, not really. I usually go to Chipotle or something like that. It's the easiest thing to get something else on campus. So I go there all the time, and uh, I, I pretty much eat there, like, I would say, like, five times a week. So. Yeah. I think I saw you on either Twitter or Instagram say something to the effect of, I need a sponsorship from Chipotle. So, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm not surprised. One thing real quick about that whole process. You know, some guys, they, they go, they get the feedback, and everybody says, right, like, oh, I'm going to work so hard when I come back and I'm going to be a new man. It seemed like you really took that feedback to heart. I mean, was that the, the decision when you decided to come back? Was it I am going to put everything into both this feedback and to making myself the best player? Because it really did feel like from the three-point shooting, as you said, your body was, uh, you know, you were in the best shape of your life, all that kind of stuff. It really did feel like you made that commitment. Everybody says they're going to do it, but you actually followed through with it. Yeah, I mean, to go up there and to hear from uh, some of the teams and teams, that was the biggest thing they were saying. So, I mean, that really opened my eyes. And it really made me want to go out there and just uh, prove to people that I can do it. So, I mean, I was in the gym conference. So I was just in there trying to get better in my craft and uh, really focusing. I tried to cut out all the distractions I had. And I didn't really, I wouldn't say talk to anybody, but I really uh, kind of kept everything to myself and just trying to focus on uh, the season and getting better. Does that process kind of teach you how to be a pro, right? Well, you know, you obviously are going to go on to the next level. And the one thing that I always hear when I talk to young guys is you lean on the older guys in the league uh, to, quote, unquote, learn how to be a pro, to take care of your body, to get the right sleep, to, as you just referenced, eat the right way. Does that whole process that you went through last year help kind of with that? Yeah, it a lot. I mean, it changed my mindset. Uh, I'm really a lot more focused than I was. Uh, I'm taking things a lot more serious than I did. And, uh, like if I keep this mindset, everything's going to be all right for me, and uh, I'm going to have a successful future. Let me ask you this. So throughout the season, obviously there was a lot of ebbs and flows. You guys have a ton of success in the Bahamas, struggle early. It seemed like early on, I don't want to say you struggled, PJ, but you weren't the player in, say, December that you were in February and March. And and I'll be honest, like I'm just going to tell you man-to-man that at times I, I in my job in radio and TV and writing – was a little bit critical. Um, was there anything that changed or anything? Because it did seem like early on in the season, 
Um, I don't want to say there wasn't the same intensity. I'm not implying that at all. I'm not saying you weren't working hard, but it seemed like a flip switched or something like that, you know, around the start of SEC play, the Kansas game, things like that. Is that fair for me to say? And you could, by the way, tell me I'm 100% wrong, but it did feel like early on uh, it took you a while to kind of get back into the, 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 swing of th- the swing of things. Excuse me. Yeah, I mean, I would say uh, at the beginning of the season, it was hard for not just me, but everybody to kind of figure out their roles. Um, you didn't really know each other that well. I mean, we're still learning each other a bit. And uh, you got to think about a really young team. Everybody's young, really young, actually. And then just to go out there, I feel like uh, I was kind of passive at first. And then uh, one game hit, and I started being uh, really aggressive. And once once that game, I played good that game, I think. And then after that, just, it just kind of just kept going from there. Do you remember what game it was off the top of your head? Um, I think it was um, the Mississippi State game at home. Yep. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, I was going to say, for, for people who remember, I actually was looking at the box scores today, but you finished with 21 points. Uh, it was right around the time of that Kansas game, which was obviously a huge home yeah. win. Yeah. It might have been the game before. Well, you guys you guys as a group were awesome against Kansas. I'm looking at the box scores right now. You went for 20-13. and 13. The game before was Mississippi State. You went for 26 and with four blocks, and that really seemed like, like I said, it, sprung, it was a springboard for the entire season. Yeah, I mean, after that game, uh, I kind of bought into I'm going to be this guy every night. Uh, I tried to work my butt off in practice. When I was learning Spanish, when being first and second, just trying to lead by example and just uh, trying to be a leader for my teammates. And uh, after that, they just kind of took a took a, a good turn, I would say. Yeah, how hard is it for a guy like you? I mean, and not just a guy like you, but, but at a program like Kentucky, and we hear Coach Cal talk about it all the time, but this isn't a place where you come in as a freshman and you're with the same group of guys for three or four years. I mean, obviously, everything that you guys did as a freshman, a lot of the players changed, a lot of the, I'm sure, scheme and system changed. I don't claim to be an X's and O's expert, but that's the way it would appear. And then in year two, not only are you asked to kind of change who you are and what you're capable of, but then, oh, by the way, as one of the older guys on the team, you have to be kind of a quote-unquote leader vocally in practice, all that stuff. I mean, not good or bad, but it just seems like that's part of kind of the deal of playing at Kentucky, right? Yeah, I mean, coming to Kentucky is really hard to try to uh, find your spot because everybody there is a great player. You have a a whole lot of McDonald's McDonald's All-Americans coming in every year. Great players coming in every year, so I mean, it's definitely hard to find a spot, but once you find it, you got to stick with it and just be the best you can at that. So, I mean, I, I kind of felt like I did that last year towards the end of the year. Uh, and towards the tournament, I played good in my freshman season, and then this past year, I just trying to uh, be more aggressive earlier and just try to uh, insert myself into different situations and try to make the best uh, outcome for my, me and my teammates. 100%. And do you feel like, as one of the older, quote-unquote, veteran guys on the team, was it something that the younger guys, when they – I don't know if, if a flip switch with them too, but obviously you leading by example, you also leading with success on the court. I mean, was it something that everybody kind of figured it out together? Because it did seem like over the second half of the year, whether it's Tyler Hero, whether it's Ashton Hagens at times, Emmanuel quickly played great at times. It did seem like everybody kind of put it together right around the same time. Yeah, I mean, we all had confidence in each other. We all worked hard. We were all in the gym at the same time late at night uh, trying to – get better with our crafts. I mean, everybody was trying to get better the whole season. And uh, once that kind of clicked for me, I felt like uh, it was a great example for everybody else to uh, keep doing what they're doing and just trust the process. And uh, once we did that, I mean, things kind of got a lot of be- a lot better for us. We started winning a lot of games. And uh, you can tell we were having a lot of fun out there. Yeah, no, you could tell. And I, and I would ask you, um, obviously, look, we all know the season didn't necessarily end the way that anyone uh, that's a Kentucky fan or a player, certainly you guys wanted. But as you look back on your two years, I mean, what are some of the best memories? Do you have a couple moments that stand out or games that stand out uh, that you'll always remember kind of part of being Kentucky, Big Blue Nation? Uh, for my freshman season, I would say the game we went uh, down to Morgantown to play West Virginia. Yeah. We were down like 19 and a half trying to come back and win that game. So, I mean, that was definitely special. Again, this year, uh, I have to, uh, the game we played Tennessee at home uh, when they were ranked number one. And I think we were five or something like that. And then the Sweet 16 game we played against Houston. Uh, those three were kind of like the biggest two to me. It meant a lot. And, uh, I feel like uh, both those teams uh, through the past few years played their hearts out in those games. So, I mean, it was really fun being a part of it. And uh, it was just a great ride. Can I ask you a question? Because I'm thinking about that now. You mentioned that Tennessee game. 
you guys were so unbelievable that night. And now part of it was you guys were at Rupp Arena, 22,000 screaming fans. It does feel like to me as an outside observer, like it just didn't seem fair to the Wildcats this year. You guys hit that peak against um, Tennessee, and then Reed goes down with an injury. He finally comes back. He's playing well. You have your situation with with your foot. I mean, nobody's blaming anyone for anything or why things didn't end the way you wanted, but it just feels like, man, you were like like just a couple bad breaks. You know what I mean? Yeah, I mean, we definitely feel like that. The ball rolled the other way for us. So, I mean, we definitely had to fight through it and just uh, keep our composure and keep and try to get healthy. When Reed, when Reed went down, it was big. We knew it was big. And uh, we just tried to hold down the fortune to get back. And uh, when I got down, it was really late in the season, so I mean, the guys were just kind of went uh, into trying to solve the play, and I tried my best to come back and uh, play, and I was still injured at the time, but I still play. Mm-hmm. Just tried to uh, give my chance, give my team a chance to win. Now, you guys all did an unbelievable job, and obviously it, it didn't end the way it end, uh, it, everyone wanted, but it was nobody uh, just kind of happens that way. I would ask, by the way, how is the foot? Are you back to feeling 100%? I mean, you played phenomenally against Houston and Auburn, um, but, you know, you were banged up during that time. Yeah, I mean, those games, uh, I definitely was uh, took a lot of pain pills and uh, trying to wrap my foot the best way I could. And uh, I went out there and played. Uh, I was kind of relying on a drill in the first game. First game was good. I felt like I couldn't really move the way I could, where I could before. So I was just trying to be careful. And uh, honestly, I feel like I play better when I'm when I'm injured because uh, really? I'm a lot more focused than usual. So and then the Auburn game, I just tried to get everything I had, and uh, it started hurting me in the second half. But I just tried to try to fight through it and just uh, keep playing. You said you think you play better when you're injured. Yeah, I mean, uh, like usually uh, when I was a kid, I used to always twist my ankles and stuff like that. So I mean. <laughs> I was always, uh, not always injured, but I always felt like I played better because I was more focused and uh, I was a lot more alert on things. Very good. So the so the so the foot is is back to close to a hundred percent. I wouldn't say it's a hundred percent. It's definitely good. Like uh, I mean, I've been uh, doing a lot of treatment and trying to get some rest, and that's uh, trying to get it back to a hundred percent before uh, things start rolling with the uh, NBA process. Very good. We'll wrap up here. A couple last quick questions. I know you got to get to. Uh, your event tonight. Um, obviously, you just mentioned the NBA draft process starting. I would just ask a very simple question. How much better prepared do you feel today, right now, May 2019, as opposed to, say, May of 2018 last year? I feel a lot better. I'm a lot more confident in uh, my abilities and uh, where I'm going to go this year. Uh, last year, I was kind of in the air. I didn't know what to do. And uh, I had a Two sides telling me two different things. I mean, I feel like I made the best decision for myself to come back and get better. And uh, this year is definitely, uh, it's definitely all enjoyment and uh, happy to be in this place and uh, happy to get things started. Did you say you had two sides telling you two different things? What does that mean? Uh, some like uh, in my head, I wanted to go. But, oh, uh, gotcha, sometimes gotcha. something was telling me in my head I wanted to come back. So I, mean, I definitely felt like I made the best, best decision for me. What was trying to convince you to go at this point last year? Besides money, which I mean, certainly doesn't hurt. Uh, just a dream, uh, being in the NBA. I mean, as a kid, I've always dreamed about that, uh, going to the NBA and just being able to play in front of millions of fans on uh, the court and also on TV. So I mean, that was a big thing for me, and uh, it kind of hurt me that I didn't didn't get a chance to go. But to come back and uh, find myself in a better position, I felt like it was a smarter decision and the best decision I could have possibly made. Very good. Wrap up with a couple last ones here. Um, Obviously, we are going to start this process here soon. You're going to be working out for teams, meeting with people. If somebody asks you, why should I draft P.J. Washington? If me, Aaron Torres, is a GM or a coach, and I say to you, P.J., why should I draft you, what would your response be? Uh, my versatility. I don't have any problems off the floor. Um, I'm always going to try my hardest speech and every day in practice and uh, in the games as well. And, uh, I'm a winner. I'll do anything to win the, uh, win the game. I'm just a competitor, and uh, I love the game of basketball. I would ask, do you think that the fact that you did play through all that pain and injury, I mean, I, I'm just giving you a piece of free advice here. You could take it or leave it. I would make sure that those GMs and those front office people know that you weren't at 100%, that you were putting it all on the line for your team, your teammates, your school. Uh, I think that says a lot about you and your dedication and your love of basketball. Yeah, I mean, that's definitely, uh, it definitely says a lot. I mean, to play with a bad foot is, uh, definitely not easy. I mean, to go out there and play the way that I did was definitely 
definitely great for me and uh, great for my teammates. But unfortunately, it didn't end like we wanted to see. But I mean, Last question, I'll let you go here. Uh, obviously, a couple of your teammates are set to return. I mean, we're waiting on to get finalized everybody, but Ashton Hagens is coming back, Emmanuel Quickly, uh, Tyrese Maxey, a guy that you've, I believe, have known most of your life. Um, what, uh, what, what do you make of next year's team? What are you excited to watch? I mean, you're going to be, uh, you know, feet up in a five-star hotel watching these games, playing for some NBA team. But, <laughs> what are you uh, What are you looking forward to watching the Cats in 2019-2020? I think the team's going to be really good next year. They have a lot of pretty special. Uh, a lot of great guys coming in. They have some length coming in. They have. And, um, uh, I like Tyrese Maxey's game. I've been knowing him since he was like first grader. So, I mean, okay. I've been seeing him. Always been dominant. Always been a team player. And he's always just ball and, uh, and uh, another show. All right, PJ Washington, I think you're starting to break up with me here. I will let you go. Dude, this was so fun. I so appreciate the time. Everyone needs to get out to KS Bar in Lexington on Thursday night to meet PJ. Uh, PJ, my man, I truly appreciate the time. Thank you.